I just want to say a very warm welcome again. Uh, my name is Andrew, if you don't know me. Um, basically, I've been working as a pastor for about seven years now, and um, we just uh, decided uh, with a group of friends earlier this year, really feeling this was God's will for us, that we should start a new church in this area. And obviously you guys have heard of it or been brought by someone. For some reason you're here today. Um, but our passion and hope is that um, we're going to be able to build a a new church community here. Um, I'm going to be talking a bit about this in the message that I'm going to bring in a couple of minutes. But essentially, church is about people knowing and loving each other as well as then growing in the knowledge of God. We're going to read now from 1 Kings 8. I just want to read a few verses. It's at the top of page 465 there. Just to set the context here, um, this is the recording of a prayer which King Solomon prayed at the um, sort of the inauguration, the, the celebration of the opening of the temple which he'd been building um, for a number of years. It was um, a magnificent structure and um, this whole prayer is recorded of what Solomon prayed and how we hope that this temple, which doesn't exist anymore by the way, it was destroyed um, a few centuries later, but how we hoped that the temple would become the center of religious life in Israel. And I just want to read to you a few verses which I thought were relevant to what we're going to think about today. Verse 41 there in 1 Kings 8. Likewise, when a foreigner who is not of your people Israel comes from a far country for your name's sake, for they shall hear of your great name and your mighty hand and of your outstretched arm. When he comes and prays toward this house, hear in heaven your dwelling place and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you in order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you as do your people Israel and that they may know that this house that I have built is called by your name. The question that I wanted to sort of ask and answer today is just why does London and why does the world need more churches? I know that when we're, um, when we're talking about church or, um, you know, when, in the world's eyes, church is not necessarily something which people naturally have an interest in or, or feel drawn to. That can be for a, a massive range of reasons. I don't know if you like me, went to a, a church school, a C of E school as a primary school um, kid, but you might have grown up in a kind of church context where you, were, you went through the motions and it put you off church, or you've had bad experiences at church, or um, church just strikes you as something irrelevant and from a bygone era. I know that for a lot of people in our society today, even if they think of themselves as, as religious in some sense, they don't necessarily have an interest in church. You just have to excuse the little kids, by the way. That was my niece, and my son's down there as well. And they just, they just do their own thing at church, and we don't have any options right now. But you just keep listening to me. Eyes on me, okay? Um, so I'm just saying that when you ask the question, does London need more churches at all? I think the vast majority of people in London would say no. I don't think there's a massive hunger or outcry for more churches in this city. So... It's an unusual thing, isn't it, to start new churches, especially when a lot of them are closing their doors. Um, so why does London need more churches? It's a really important question. 
I would just want to begin by appealing to you personally that this is, this is obviously my life. Church has been my life for as long as I can remember. And uh, starting a new one in this way is really a labor of love because I know what church can accomplish. I know what church has done for people that I've met, who people who've come into my life and come through our home and, and how it's affected and transformed them. I've seen the impact of church on people's lives. So starting a, a new one like this is a labor of love. It's, a, it's just a hope and a, and a vision and a passion and something which um, I can't fully convey to you this morning. It's hard to fully express what all our hopes and, and dreams are for a church in London. But I want to try and give you something of a flavor of why I think London needs not just this church, but thousands more churches to, to house and accommodate its millions of people. I want to give you three reasons, but before I begin, I just need to clarify for you that I chose this passage because although it's from one of the older parts of the Bible, as you follow the storyline of the Bible, and I explain this a little bit more, the temple no longer becomes necessary because it's replaced by the church. So that what was a local place of worship that you was physical, which was standing there and people could travel to, became the people of God spread in all the world. And we're gonna, I'm going to try and explain that a little bit more as we go along. But that's why I've chosen this passage, because what Solomon prays here for the temple is just as relevant, and we can take it up and pray it for the church of God in the world. I want to give you three reasons why London needs more churches. The first is that the church is a shopfront display for God's glory. I know when um, I use a word like glory, I'm, it's, it's Christian language. You can just sort of imagine, um, you know, it on the lips of any preacher, you know, declaring glory. It's kind of a very Christian word. But essentially what it means is just the outshining. When it's applied to God, it's the outshining of his character. So it's taking what is invisible about God, seeing as we can't see him or touch him or smell him or anything, and making it visible. That's how the Bible uses the word glory. It's something that you perceive, something that you see about God. So you can see his glory in creation. You see his glory in beauty. You see his glory in, in his mighty acts, and so on and so on. The temple in Jerusalem showed God's glory in a few ways. For one thing, it was just the most astounding structure, uh, one of the most astounding structures that had been built at all up to date. One of the seven wonders of the world and would have taken your breath away when you approached it. So anyone going to Jerusalem, it was, it was alongside Solomon's palace, because he built himself a nice palace as well, by, if you read the records. This was the most amazing structure, and it would have caused you to gasp when you saw it. When I uh, went to Barcelona, I think it was about four or five years ago with my wife, when I, whenever I go on holiday, I don't I make a point of not looking at the, the, the guidebooks or going on the internet because I really want to be surprised when I arrive, which means that it can be a bad surprise, of course, when you, when you don't know where you're going. But I trust C to uh, look at the right places to visit. So we went to Barcelona, and she, she said one day, okay, today we're going to go see the Sagrada Familia, which, for some reason, I'd made it into my late 20s without ever having seen a picture of this thing or knowing anything about it. It's only one of the most famous buildings in the world, but it just displays my ignorance. So we traveled on the underground, and we came out from the, uh, the subway, I think it was, on, onto the pavement and saw this structure, and I was, I was gobsmacked. My breath was taken away. 
I know, no need to go on Google Images right now, guys, but <laughs> later when you get home, if you haven't seen it, it's worthwhile seeing. It's taken 132 years so far to build. It's not finished yet. It's got various styles of architecture. It's got pillars that soar into the ceiling. And it really takes your breath away. And that would have been an experience for a pilgrim going up to Jerusalem, seeing the temple. That was one way that it showed God's glory. And, and Solomon deliberately built it that way. And why churches have been built that way up to now? Buildings, I'm talking about. The second way was that God's presence was there. It says in the previous chapter that after they finished the building of the temple, a cloud came and filled the temple, so much so that the priests, whose job was to go in and out, couldn't stand to minister because they sensed the presence of God in the place. And uh, for Solomon, he knew that this place housed the presence of God. But when he's praying here about foreigners, he's not thinking actually about the beauty of the structure. He's not thinking about the presence of God so much in the place. The way in which he sees the glory of God being shone out from the temple is is quite different. If you look carefully at at these verses, what it has to do with is that the temple is the center, the symbol of God's goodness to his people. So look at the way he prays in verse 41 and 42. He says, likewise, when a foreigner who is not of your people Israel comes from a far country for your name's sake... For they shall hear of your great name and your mighty hand and of your outstretched arm. So what Solomon has in mind is that people will have heard of him. He was probably one of the most famous men alive on the planet. He was probably the richest man who's ever lived. Um, he had an enormous empire. His people were happy. Unlike the Scots, they didn't want to break away. They were, they were very happy under Solomon's rule. He was a just king. He was a good king. He was a peaceful king. And there was so much to commend his reign. So that when you, if you were a foreigner, you belonged to one of the neighboring nations, not part of Israel. You looked in at Israel. You would have thought, I need to know their God. I need to know the God that they worship because look how good things are for them. That is basically what Solomon, Solomon's anticipating that they'll look in and feel that way. So how does this relate to the church? Well, just as the the temple was a great building, I'm not talking here about churches having great buildings. I I honestly think, and the fact that we're in a pub is a testimony to this, churches can meet anywhere and be the church. If you destroyed every church building on the planet overnight, the church of God wouldn't stop because the church of God is the people of God. And in fact, the places of the world where the church is growing most quickly and rapidly and powerfully is where it meets in people's homes, in secret often, under persecution often. I'm not even talking about that second sense, how God's glory filled the temple like a cloud and people being drawn to the church because, in some sense, His presence is here. Now, I do believe that God's here whenever people gather. But the thing that displays God's glory to the world through the church is this third thing. That just as God's favor was on the people of Israel, so that they looked at the the surrounding nations, could look at them and say, Wow, your God must be amazing. There's a sense in which that's exactly what the church is meant to do. The church is meant to be present in every city, in every village, in every community, in all of the earth, to show God's goodness to the earth because of the lives of the people who are in the church. What do I mean? Well, there's a few examples of this in the New Testament. When Jesus healed a man who was, he was bound up with, with spirits, basically. 
Um, the New Testament's very clear that we, there's a belief in the power of invisible spirits. And this guy was, was, um, was basically crazy, but also had um, unusual strength and couldn't be subdued. And Jesus goes along, and in his power, he frees him. He casts out the spirits. And uh, the minute he's freed, he wants to become one of Jesus' followers. Jesus was a traveling preacher, and he had a number of people who came with him. And Jesus said to this guy, unusually, he says, no, don't follow me. And the reason why, in Mark 5, 19, he says, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he's had mercy on you. This guy was to become a kind of walking advertisement of the power of Jesus in a life. This is how the church can display God's glory to the world, because Every person who belongs to Christ church has been impacted by Jesus in some way. And I'm not saying, and you mustn't hear me as saying, that Christians are in some sense better, and that the church is necessarily better than people who are not in it. In fact, Jesus was so clear, he was emphatic on this point, said it again and again, that the people he came for were the sick. One example of that was one of his, and by which he meant spiritually sick, people who are, who are, whose lives are not mended, who are out of order in some way and know it to be true. One example of this was a guy um, who was a tax collector, who was hated by his own people and um, was really a kind of a crook and a criminal. And Jesus, he became one of Jesus' followers and in doing that, he renounced his old way of life, which was basically taking lots of money from the Jews to give it to the Romans and then taking a skimming a cut for himself. And when Jesus went to hang out at this guy's house, all of this guy's friends were kind of the lowlifes of society, people who your ordinary respectable Jew wouldn't hang out with. And of course, people then ask questions about Jesus. Why is he hanging out with this guy? Look at all the company he keeps. And Jesus' answer is that he hadn't come for the sick. So he hadn't come for the people who are well, but for the sick, because it's the sick who need a doctor. The church of God doesn't exist for people who think that their life is together. It exists for people who are aware of a deep need in their life, aware of a deep need at a spiritual level, and particularly of a need for God. Then... Informing Jesus' church, bringing together lives and mending them, Jesus then tells his people that they're meant to be salt and light in the world. There's a passage in Matthew 5 where Jesus tells, um, he, he puts it this way, he says, You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall it be, its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You're the light of the world, a city set on a hill, cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. What I'm essentially trying to put across to you is that just as the temple and the religion surrounding the temple and God's favor and blessing made all the surrounding nations look at Israel and think, I want to be a part of that. The church exists in exactly the same way and for the same function. And why London needs more churches is because God's power, His glory, His goodness is shown through His people. 
That's the first thing. The second thing is this, that the church is a place where people can encounter God. Now, as you know, um, the ancients, people at the time of Solomon and really for most of the history of the world, have believed in localized deities. So gods who have a power in a specific place. So you might climb to a particular altar or on a particular hill or a particular temple. And if you thought a particular god was worth praying to, making sacrifices to, you would be compelled to make some kind of a pilgrimage. You might travel across lands by foot, by camel, by whatever mode of transport. You might travel halfway across the world to try and connect with a particular god in a way that's meaningful because you feel there's power in this god. Now Solomon, in, a, in that kind of way, is, is thinking about how the surrounding nations are going to want to come and, and discover God, the God that he worships. He's built the temple to the God that he believes is the living God, the true God, the only God. And he says, there's this expectation in his prayer that they're going to want to come and they're going to want to pray to him. They'll want to come and watch how this God wants to be worshipped. Then they'll engage in worship and then they'll pray to God, seeking a blessing for themselves. Why else would they travel so far to reach the temple in the first place. So Solomon puts it this way in his prayer. He says, they'll hear of your great name and your mighty hand and of your outstretched arm. He says, when he comes and prays toward this house, hear in heaven your dwelling place and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you. What Solomon is praying for essentially is this, that when spiritual seekers come to the temple to pray, he's saying, God, will you show yourself to be real to these people? Now, the the Israelites, like Solomon, used to have a kind of, almost a mocking view sometimes of the gods of other nations. So in in the book of Isaiah, there's a passage where there's this, this kind of humor and mockery going on about all the idols that the different nations worship. He says, a guy plants a seed and he waters a tree until it grows into a mighty tree. Then he cuts the tree down and he uses half the tree as firewood to keep his house warm because he gets cold. He uses half the tree to, to cook his food because he gets hungry and weak and he needs to eat. And then he takes a little block of it and carves it into a god and then prays to that god. And for the Israelites, they think, this is, this is ridiculous. How can you think that the same tree you planted has now become a god? The same tree which you used to heat your house has now become a, a living, powerful deity. They say it's completely ridiculous. And what Solomon is saying, essentially, is that the god, by the way, who has no images, they, they never made idols, the Old Testament um, believers. He's saying, when people come to your temple and pray, show yourself you're real by answering their prayers. Now we zoom forward three millennia to today's modern world. And actually a lot is the same. We still have the same kind of spiritual seeking going on in people's hearts. So just as people at the time of Solomon were were seeking reality, we have people today who are hungering for reality, spiritual reality. And I don't know if that's true of you. Whoops. That didn't look good. We have people today who are... (coughs) 
<laughs> just sabotaging this message. Okay. <laughs> Who are basically spiritual seekers in exactly the same way, looking for reality. It begins with a hunger, a desire, a yearning, a longing. And for many people, that feels different. It can feel like a sense that something's missing, an ache, a loneliness, a nostalgia is how C.S. Lewis spoke about this, this ache inside. The feeling you get when you see a sunset and you think, there must be more. What is this beauty that I'm hungering for, I'm longing for, I'm searching for? That was how C.S. Lewis spoke about it. Other people feel it as a deep sense of loss or of grief or of loneliness or of guilt even. The burden of guilt feeling that things aren't right with you, that you've done so much wrong that you cannot put right. I don't think there's a person alive who's never at some point in their life felt the spiritual hunger. And it was the same thing Solomon expected from the surrounding nations. If you don't know the living God, then there's something missing in your life and you're going to feel spiritual hunger. But also, just as those people would engage in pilgrimage in order to find their way to the temple and, and touch this reality, as it were, and discover, is this God real? The God in, who, who's in this temple, is he real? So also, people today go on all kinds of pilgrimages. That can be literal, physical ones. Um, I, I've got friends who've done that, who've traveled um, into the Far East to go and, and discover if there's some, something real in the spiritualities they've read about. Or people do it in other ways, perhaps just through a journey in your mind through literature, through reading holy books, as it were, or through reading philosophers or whatever. People go on pilgrimages to find the reality that they're searching for, the spiritual longing, um, and to discover if it's real. Other people fill their lives with whatever way they can to kind of dampen this, this longing and fill this hole, and it can be through alternative lifestyles or experimenting with drugs or whatever. However you do it and however you describe it, it's basically the same thing, the same urge. It's spiritual hunger and pilgrimage towards groping towards reality, hoping that you'll find it. But the difference between what we're seeing in Solomon's day and what we're seeing today is that whereas it was necessary then that if you were from another country, you had to travel because the temple was fixed, it was in one location, and it was immobile. The church, which is now God's temple, is described in the New Testament as being, believers being like jars of clay. Because even if we're not impressive on the outside, and you know we don't necessarily have things together when our church services are not perfect or slick, and we ourselves are not perfect or slick. Our lives aren't always having things together. Yet, even if we're just jars of clay, the Bible says, we contain a treasure. And that treasure is the message which the church holds and carries and transmits. So that churches which contain this treasure, which tell the story, which hold this message, which we call the gospel, and tell it again and again and again, are as it were, temples, but bringing the temple to the people rather than the people coming to the temple. They're carrying the message of Christianity into the world so that in the hope, in the desperate hope, that people will have an encounter with the God that we have come to meet. I know that not all of you will know what that message is, so let me just try and summarize it for you as quickly as I can. What it is, the heart of what Christians believe, and it's simply this. 
that yes, if you are a seeker, if you've sensed that ache, that longing, that really where that comes from is a separation between you, the creature, and God who is your maker. It stands to reason, doesn't it, that if you were made by a God who is over and above us, that if you don't know that God, then there's something missing in your life. And the Bible tells us that that separation between us and God is on account of our wrongdoing, which we call sin. And that sin in our lives, which we're all guilty of, thoroughly sort of works its way into our entire being. Not to say that every part of you is wrong or sinful, but to say that all of you is contaminated by it. A few years ago, when uh, my wife and I lived in a house up in North London, we would come down occasionally in the morning and find slugs in our kitchen. It was disgusting, I tell you. Or you'd just see the trail across the wall. I was always amazed by how far these things can travel if you give them a whole night to do it. But this one day, C was making uh, roast potatoes, and so she wanted some semolina because you can apparently sprinkle it on and it goes crispy in the oven. Delicious. She opened the bag of semolina to discover inside a slug just rolling around, just, you know, just happily bathing in the semolina, just coated in this stuff as it stuck to its body. Now, she just pulled the slug out and then made the dinner. No, she didn't. <laughs> she didn't. She threw the bag away. Obviously, she threw the bag away. And my point is that the way the Bible talks about sin is, is like that. That even if you think, well, there's parts of me that are good, the Bible says, no, it's, it's completely pervaded your being. So that every, every urge and desire is, is in some way contaminated by, by sin. And then it goes further and tells us there's absolutely nothing you can do about it. So the Bible, in a way, pushes our face in the dirt and humbles us to the ground and tells us you are completely without hope. Now that goes against the message of every other religion, which tells you you can do something about the wrong in your life, providing you do enough good. It seems to me that even in a, a largely secular age, a lot of people have imbibed particularly Eastern ideas of karma and of balancing good and bad, which is basically at the heart of most religions. But Christianity says, no, there's no amount of good that you can do that could ever deal with the problem of sin in your life. But that's not to say there is no solution. The Bible says that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins, which is to say the only solution that God has given us for dealing with sin in our life is atonement. Just to say, a sacrifice for sin. And then we follow the storyline of the Bible which centers around the temple for centuries and centuries where the Jews are making these sacrifices day after day, slaughtering animals by, probably by the, the tens of millions, potentially even billions across the, the course of their history until Jesus, who in his life recognized himself as the final sacrifice, put himself in the place of the lamb that would be slaughtered on the altar and said, I'm going to die for sin. The perfect one in place of you, in place of me. So that the sin, the contamination in your life that you can't deal with is, is dealt with by him. He gives his life as the atonement. He sheds his blood. His own blood is poured out on the cross in place of you. And then he says, all you have to do 
is believe on me. And then your, your sin can be forgiven. I know that when Christians tell this story, this message, it's met with different reactions. And Jesus said there'll be different reactions. I'm going to talk about, a bit about this next week. How different people's hearts are like different types of soil. Some of them are like hard-pressed soil so that even if they hear what I've just said, it, it quickly is forgotten and goes away. Other people are maybe a little bit more receptive for a while. He says there's a certain kind of person, though, who hears it and recognizes this is the truth. And I, I would just encourage you that just as the temple was the center of where people would encounter God and come and discover his reality, it's my conviction that, as a rule, it's in coming to church that you discover the reality of what we're talking about. There are other ways you can discover it, but it's primarily when you're with God's people who carry this message, who believe it, who live it, who communicate it. And Jesus admired and, and talked about the virtue of persistence, of people who, who keep seeking, who keep pressing, who keep digging and digging and digging until they find what they were looking for. Years ago, one of um, my mum had a ring with a with a few diamonds in it, the engagement ring that she owned, and, and a diamond fell out of it. It was essential one of three. It was pretty crucial to the overall look and feel of the ring. You'd notice if it wasn't there. And so obviously she was really upset. This ring was irreplaceable to her. She searched high and low across the house, um, which seems like a pretty hopeless task, doesn't it, looking for a diamond? But um, she looked high and low and you know, was crying and looked for hours, didn't find the thing. Until my older brother just said to her, look, have you thought about looking in the hoover? So she, she took out the hoover, emptied the hoover bag, dust everywhere, and went through it carefully. And sure enough, a tiny sparkle just caught her eye, and there was the diamond that was being hoovered up. She was rewarded by her persistence in finding the thing that she was searching for. And really... That would be my exhortation to anybody who, who, who identifies with that spiritual longing that I've described. You can only find the answer sometimes if you keep looking. So the temple was the short front display of God's glory. It was a place where people would come and encounter God and so also the church. But I want to give you a third and final thing before I finish. The church, like the temple or the church in particular, is a place where you find belonging. I um, picked up an article in The Guardian um, that was, came up last month where a, a writer called Paul Mason described his perfect city. And uh, he said it has ten characteristics, and he said there were these. That it needs to be near the sea, which is something I definitely agree with. Um, it has neighborhoods designed around hipster economics. He says, even if hipsters are annoying, there's still good things about what they do. Um, it needs a big but not too big financial center. It needs theaters. It needs, fifthly, bike lanes and trams. Six, it needs places to hook up with strangers across whatever sexuality you are. Uh, it needs pubs that perfectly embody the mix of old and new. It needs eight 
ethnic diversity and gender equality. Nine, it should have no slums, or at least the slums it has should be hope-filled slums. And and tenth, it should have democracy. So he described his perfect city. And when I read it, I thought to myself, there's something missing there, obviously. Um, It's kind of in the title of the message, isn't it? Why does London need more churches? A bit of a clue there. But what's missing is a church, and I want to tell you why. I I actually picked up that article looking on the Twitter feed of the Centre for London, which is a political think tank which is constantly engaged with the idea, how can you make London a better city to live in? A few weeks after that, they had an event um, which they called Divided City, where they had a panel of experts um, asking the question, how can we help London to be a more integrated city? There's all kinds of people groups. It's one of the most, most diverse cities on the planet, isn't it? How can a city like this where the people are so divided be more integrated. And on that panel, there was a man called Mark Rusling, who is um, Waltham Forest councillor and manager of the Social Integration Commission. And he's quoted as saying this, that the church is by far the most integrated institution across all social grades. The church is by far the most integrated institution across all social grades. I think he's right. But why? Is it an accident? Is it an accident that that churches are so mixed and diverse and represent all kinds of people from all kinds of backgrounds? The answer is no. That while what Solomon's praying about here, verse 43, look, he says, Here in heaven your dwelling place and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you in order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you as do your people Israel, and that they may know that this house that I've built is called by your name. Solomon was kind of reaching towards a hope, a desire, an urge, which is just there in seed form in the early centuries of, of, uh, of the Old Testament religion, which is that the knowledge they had of God would somehow reach other nations. And when Jesus comes, something radical happens in that whereas all of it had been come, 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 look at the temple, come if you want to join us, be a part of our people, it suddenly he turned the direction around altogether so that even his closest followers, the the disciples, the 12 disciples, he called them apostles, which means sent ones because he gave them a mission to take what they knew of God into all the world. And in taking the message, his hope the explicit ambition of Christ and of the New Testament is that the church of God would, be, would represent all peoples on the face of the earth and have no divisions, none of the earthly things, divisions that, that divide people group from people group and so on. Which is why I read to you from 1 Peter 2 right when we were in the worship time earlier. You might want to turn back there on page 1766. Because in these verses... Peter's giving us a definition of what the church is that radically speaks into the problems of social division and breakdown. He says, verse 9, and bear in mind, Peter is a Jewish fisherman, follower of Jesus, carrying the message of Jesus into the world, eventually died for the message that he believed, but he carried it to, to Gentiles, people, non-Jews, And he's writing to Gentiles who are representing different ethnicities and and nations. And he says to them this. He says, you are a chosen race. Verse 9. In other words, 
you're kind of an extended family now. Even if you're from different races and backgrounds, now you're one race. He says you're a royal priesthood. In other words, no matter what background you come from, I don't care whether you're the, the, the social elite or the blue-collar workers like he was himself, now we're all royal priests in God's kingdom. And he says, thirdly, you're a holy nation. Which means that even if you're from different nationalities, not just races, but different nationalities, suddenly when you become a part of the church of God, you have a nationality which overrides and trumps your earthly nationality, which is the reason why the church of God pulls people from the most random and diverse backgrounds and puts them in community together in a way that works. He overcomes racial breakdown. It overcomes class breakdown. And it overcomes national, nationalism and national breakdown. What if churches don't reflect that diversity? What then? Sometimes there are explanations you can give you know, that they, it might just be that in their area, their area is less diverse. Sometimes it's because you need to look at the church across a whole city, represented by different local churches, and say, okay, when we take the whole thing, it's a diverse organization, even if each local one isn't particularly diverse. But I, even then, you can excuse it all you like, there are still churches which are deliberately and consciously pushing against this idea which is in the Bible, which is that the church is for everyone. And really they're broken churches. There's something wrong with them. I, a number of years ago, um, I had the pleasure of conducting a wedding for two friends of mine who are Nigerian. And um, in the run-up to this wedding, they explained to me a problem they'd had, which is that I hadn't understood this, that for, for them being a Nigerian, it's actually easier for either one of them to marry from a completely different race and nation than it was to marry another Nigerian who is from a different tribe because of the strong tribal barriers between the, uh, it, that exist there. And so the girl's dad was a chief in her tribe and the guy's dad and mom were both professors in universities. These guys were high social rank. Their wedding was public in that sense. It would be known that they were coming together. But somehow because of what they believe about the gospel, what they believe about Christ's church, their faith trumped their tribalism. Faith overrode tribalism for them. But tribalism isn't just a Nigerian thing. It's a human thing. You just look around and look at how people who hang out together start to dress the same, um, tend to be from similar backgrounds, similar ways of speaking. There's always something that draws them together. And when the church of God forgets that tribalism is wrong, sometimes they do become pocketed and segmented and not diverse. But when we look at the end of the Bible and we look at how the church is spoken of as kind of a future picture of what it's going to be, this is how it's described. As a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. So it's like they're all dressed the same in the sense that, not in, in a weird way like the cults or whatever, but in the sense that all of those sort of earthly divisions have melted away. They're no longer relevant. 
Why? Because they're all focused on the one who drew, drew them together, which is Jesus himself. Now, we see this happening in a small way with Jesus' followers who were with him when he was walking around. Yeah, they were all Jews, admittedly, but you had guys who were educated and uneducated. One of them was a scholar. Some, most of them were uneducated guys. They, they maybe just could read and write, but that was about it. Blue-collar guys. You had guys who would have been fairly wealthy and guys who definitely would not have been. You had guys, and more importantly, who were basically working for the Roman Empire and guys who were zealously fighting against the Roman Empire. And somehow, even in Jesus' closest friends, the 12 followers that he had, these differences began to melt away. And there's no earthly explanation for that other than that they all love Jesus. I suppose you see little shadows of this in life, don't you, where, let's say, guys from different backgrounds all support the same football team. Suddenly, for one day a week, it doesn't matter where they come from, they care about their one allegiance. But you see, the church of Jesus Christ does that in a much more extensive and pervasive way because it's not just about Saturdays at the game. It's about all of life. It's about the barriers that bring us, separate us, whether on age, class, race, ethnicity, nationality, all that stuff, melting away because Jesus is the center and focus of his church. It was happening in seed form, as I said, with the temple, when Solomon's praying this prayer that foreigners would come and discover something of the goodness and the riches of God that he'd discovered but it begins to explode from the time of Jesus, which is why, of course, that the church is touching just about every nation on the planet. It must be the biggest organization there is in the world today. And people from every kind of background. And that's why it's also my ambition for this church that in some way we're going to reflect that in this area. And the reason why that's so hopeful for individuals is that in the church, you find belonging. It might not be something you experience the minute you walk in on the first day you come to church. But over time, this is what happens. That when people come and they gather around the worship of Jesus, that suddenly you find that you have friends with people you would never have expected to know. You'd never have met them in any other situation and would never have got to love them. Why does London need more churches then? It's a short front display of God's glory in the earth. It's a place where people encounter him. But it's also a place where people belong. And I just want to say you're welcome to join. You're welcome to be a part of what we're doing here. We, we want to be available to you if you're somebody who's seeking, who's not sure what the truth is as, what, as it were, and you're on a spiritual journey. I, I'd love to talk with you. It'd be my absolute pleasure to do that. If you're somebody who just feels you need friends, then come along. Be a part of what we're doing here. And if you are already convinced and you are sold on the idea of church and you know what it's about and want to join, then this is a great time. It's early days and we're expecting a lot to happen in the months and years ahead. 